2: Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osha Ginsberg and thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring and hopefully it'll leave you truly inspired as well. My goal on this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or guests who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too. My guest today, a bonafide pop star, former lead singer of Savage Garden, Darren Hayes more about him in a moment if you could do me a kindness, tweet out a link to the show The link is osherginsberg.com. Very very simple just go to that website o s h e r g u n s b e r g and there is there 's a tweet link there 's a like link there 's a google plus link it 's all there um, but that would be remarkable if you could do that for me that would be wonderful and please leave a rate and a comment a rating and a comment on on the show in iTunes um thank you so so very very much uh me i had a I had a pretty good week i had a pretty pretty good week uh things are a lot better i'll tell you why in in a moment i rode my first 100 kilometer ride today which is yesterday by the time you hear this and uh, it was killer it included a, a famous uh, climb here in los angeles called latigo canyon which is um for cyclists listening 15 kilometers straight up um 15 minutes it took, uh, 57 minutes, 57 minutes it took of climbing and it was pretty awesome. So uh, I burned about 3,600 calories doing that ride today. So after I record this, I'm going to go eat everything at the Vegan Thai Place on Washington. and It's going to be great. And um, also, whatever what else happened this week? Oh yeah, just because I don't quite have enough ways to get content into my house. The Amazon Fire TV arrived this week. It's made many things in my life quite awesome. The voice search is just superb. Um, and uh, I finally finished the UK version, version of House of Cards, the original version of House of Cards, which is amazing. Um, what else did I do this week? I pitched one of the shows that I'm working on to a few people around town, which is quite fun. I do love the process of it all. It's not about if the show gets picked up. It's about the process, man. It's about the it's about the process. It's it, it, This week involved a couple of very fun meetings, including a very fancy one at the uh, Los Angeles Tennis Club which was great. It's nice to take a business meeting and a t-shirt at a tennis club. It was pretty rad. Thanks to everybody who tweeted out about the other podcast I'm doing, Let Me Tell You Something with Natalia Perez. You can find that show on iTunes. Just search Let Me Tell You Something and click on podcast. It's there. It's an advice podcast. It's about relationships, work, sometimes food. Give it a shot. If you like it, send us a question. We'd love to help. So Darren Hayes, he's amazing. He is a really wonderful human being. Very grounded, very together, as you'll hear, you're going to fall in love with this guy. He and his husband came to my house a few weeks ago to record this. It was a very open, very honest conversation about what it is to be at the top of the billboard charts in the US, not once, but twice with Savage Garden, what it is to record five solo albums, and then what it was like when that ended. He goes into great detail, in fact, about his very last night as a pop star, I really can't thank him enough for being so frank and so honest. And speaking of being frank and honest, he and I talk about anxiety and we talk about depression. We talk about being on and off meds. Now, at the time when I recorded this about a month and a half ago, I was not on meds. And I, I talk quite openly about that. And it's only right that I tell you that that information is now no longer correct. Um, after that particularly tough couple of weeks, a little while back, I'm i 'm back on meds. I needed just a little bit of a help to rationalize my way about the interesting things that my brain was doing now. Uh, the kind of meds if you 've never been on meds, the kind of meds that i 'm on they give me absolutely no high there 's absolutely no low there's, that means there 's not a stimulant nor a depressive effect of of the medication i don 't sleep more i don 't sleep less uh it's barely noticeable the only thing that they allow me to do is to use my rationalization tools more effectively it's a very interesting way that it helps the brain work and it's made a world of difference but it's not like applying a band-aid to a situation um Darren and I talk about this but I'll tell you the metaphor now it's kind of like when I tore my ACL Uh, My anterior cruciate ligament in my left knee. I tore it snowboarding. I got to wear a big metal knee brace that um, basically helped my helped my knee learn to walk and learn to work in the correct plane of movement and the correct plane of motion safely. Helped me build up the muscles around that plane of motion. And with the right amount of rehab, I was soon able to not only walk, but then jog and then run marathons without this knee brace. But for a time, I couldn't live without it. So. In many ways, same, same. It's a, it's a small part, being on meds is a small part of a greater management plan um, that I work on with um, both of my doctors. Um, but, you know, to quote Carrie from Homeland, um, this is the brain I was born with. It's the brain that makes me who I am and I live with it and, um, and it's okay. So, you know, that's it. I know uh, when I did the Michelle Laurie podcast, we talked about, you know, what it was to come off off them, but um, yeah, it got to a point. You can imagine what it got to that I felt that I needed to get back on them. So I'll leave that with you. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm grateful that I have a excellent, excellent, excellent doctor, uh, two excellent doctors in my life that that really helped me out. Um, one more thing, uh, another trigger warning, a trigger warning this week. Darren gets very honest. We get quite deep. And he talks about domestic violence in his house in this episode. So if that's a trigger for you when you hear him start to talk about his father, just skip forward a few minutes and you'll come out the other side safely into us chatting about pop music, okay? While you're listening to this, do tweet Darren. He is very active on Twitter. I highly recommend following him, at Darren Hayes, D-A-R-R-E-N-H-A-Y-E-S. Go subscribe to his podcast, Talk, Talk, Talk. So enjoy this It's a fabulously deep conversation, a deep and honest conversation with the fascinating man, the delightful man, the charming and wonderful Darren Hayes. I do believe you're the very first person to be at the top of the Billboard charts in my house while I've been living here.
3: I do believe you're the first Australian... Whose house I visited as a Billboard number one scoring artist. So it's a first Today? Study. Yes. Today. <laughs> <laughs> Darren Hayes, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really
2: happy you're here as we drink tea. Now, people do write in and they say, Can you not slope the tea into the microphones?
3: This is uh, professional recording advice, and I'm going to take it. But yeah. it is
2: fantastic tea. Well, I would love everyone to know that when you welcome someone into your home, offering them a warm beverages is it's fairly standard. I yes. saw it on Downton Abbey, so it must be true.
3: It was very polite. And there was also another lovely tradition that we had when I arrived where I instinctively asked if I should take my shoes off. And you looked relieved that I asked. Yes. And I was saying, but that's an Australian thing because we're used to the good room. Yes. So when you come into anyone's house, you ask if you could take your shoes off.
2: It was It actually a friend of mine uh, when she lived in New York, she was like, oh, take them off. And I never really used to care. She yeah. was like, mate, you don't
3: want to walk all that energy through my house.
2: Got it? Got it.
3: It's weird. I'm in with my, it. In my own house, I don't really care. But um, if you think about where your shoes go. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, now I don't drink anymore. They don't go as far as mm-hmm. the most dangerous places I used to go. So I was thinking, getting ready for this, I was thinking, you and I have, we actually have a lot in common. We do. We do have a lot in common. We're both from Brisbane, which we'll talk about. We both spent at least a few years of our lives as blondes.
3: Yes, I'm just. You can't see, you can't smell the tea, or see Osha's hair. But yes, we both uh, we're sort of rat brown. I I think is the colour. That was blonde at the time. Yeah, and we've both been divorced. Yes, to women,
2: (laughs) which (laughs) is weird. But you've never been divorced to a man, not yet. Nor have I. Time is time, and you know, (laughs) I'm willing that won't happen. Um, So we should, you know, because I'm just really grateful you're here. Your your podcast is talk, talk, talk with Darren Hayes, and it's
3: fascinating it's a very different podcast it's not this and i love your show and it's very strange because i started doing that virtually at the same time i noticed your podcast oh really and then i got really jealous of your audio quality because mine is completely different mine's over dodgy phone lines and it's mostly a listener call-in thing uh-huh. but i love the format of your show so i was kind of hoping you would ask me to come.
2: <laughs> i'm on. really glad you're here yeah. and if you want any i can i can show you how Uh, If you want any help with that afterwards, please be more than more than helpful. Um, this thing's great. Since this things come along, everything's super awesome.
3: It looks like something from Dr. Who we're referring to a device that appears to record and broadcast our voices. It's incredible.
2: I push play and there's people inside it and they talk (laughs) back and they sound like us. So I often have this thing and it was, I'm a fan of Malcolm Gladwell, the author. I was a big fan of his book, outliers. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't like What the Dog Saw very much, but I also love The Tipping Point. His latest book, David and Goliath, is an exceptional read. And I wonder, Hmm. and his theory that he prophesizes, theorizes, is that people who have some sort of inhibition early in life have to struggle just a little bit harder, and then that's their just MO as they go through life. And so by the time they get wherever they're going, they're like, what do you mean? This is how I've always done it. And I wonder if living Hmm. in Brisbane did that
3: to you. I absolutely think there's a value in struggle. Absolutely. Um, Interestingly, I think the Brisbane aspect for me is the least motivating factor in my life. I mean, yes, living in Brisbane, um, we were – at the time, I didn't realize it, but I guess we were quite poor. But it's a testament to my mum that I didn't feel poor. But I was always aware there was sort of a north-south divide. and You were s- on a
2: deep south side. Deep
3: south. and we I were, never went over. to only, <laughs> It was only when
2: I started working for B105, the radio station, and, and driving the Black Thunders out there that I was like, oh, this is different.
3: Yeah. I mean, in, in every city and every town and every country in the world has got the place you want to live and the place you prefer not to live. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in the place you probably prefer not to live, but the, I didn't realize. The eight mile of Brisbane. There you go. And uh, so, yeah, we were kind of poor and it was... Difficult because looking back, I obviously was a gay kid, didn't know it. Everyone else told me I was gay before I I really even realized. But I got picked on a lot. We were poor. Um, My father was a very violent alcoholic and um, I had a lot to push against, I think. And there was a massive amount of escapism. I say this to my sister, actually. Um, My sister's got two beautiful kids and... um, You know, we used to say, because their lives are so happy, do you think their adulthood will be boring or unmotivated because we had so much to push against? And the jury's still out on that. I don't know. I'm not advocating trauma, but having something to overcome or struggle is a huge part of my uh, psyche. As a kid, though,
2: you accept the world as it is, and you—you mm-hmm. know—we have this trick in our brains that oh, this must be
3: how it is for everybody. Mm-hmm. When did you notice that your home life and family life was kind of different? Well, I think shame is a big thing. I mean, I'm sort of working on a one-man show, and I have to keep saying that this will happen so that it happens. But I've been oh, writing because cool, I wanted to talk to you. Well, that. I've been writing a book for years and years and years, and the big theme and all of it is just overcoming shame—shame shame mm-hmm. of being poor. Shame of being, um, you know, that little kid under the table who um, is afraid to tell teachers and friends and family um, that dad hits mom. And uh, because there was so much shame and so much secrecy involved in it, and it's sort of, it's all interwoven into my sexuality. I learned as a child that there were secrets there were just things that you didn't speak to other people about. So when I would go to school after essentially being on an all-night vigil, trying to protect my mum, uh, having not slept, I dare not tell anyone. And, I, and in fact, the first person I ever told about my childhood, I was 17. So I'd lived it all and survived it all before I ever confessed to an adult. So I never had any scaffolding. I didn't have anyone as a mentor. I didn't have... Uh, anyone that I could confess it to, but I knew when kids came home to my house, um, there were holes in the walls that we used to patch up. I'm quite good with spat filler. Um, there was uh, this need to keep up airs and graces, and I knew that we weren't maybe as rich as other families, so I was slightly ashamed about that. I knew that there was this forbidden secret about our you know family dynamic that we couldn't tell anyone about, and I also knew that I had crushes on boys and every possible feedback that I, that I could receive in my life from kids picking on me to my own father to everybody, even people who loved me that would say little things that you say to children like, what do you mean Dirk Benedict from Battlestar Galactica is cute? You can't say cute. And as a child, I would go, oh, okay. And I would file that away and think, yeah. don't say that. That's a thought you shouldn't have.
2: He was really – and Dirk Benedict, goddamn, that hot – even when he was in the A team later. Hot. What? And yeah. what a name. Dirk Benedict. No, it sounds like a porn title. Doesn't it? He's uh-huh. <laughs> completely. And now you you've brought up something that really triggered something in me cuz I remember as a kid my you know growing up my I don't remember I don't, there was no violence in my home, physical violence in my home, but mm-hmm. there was most definitely my parents fought tooth and nail mm-hmm. and I just I had forgotten that. Yeah, I used to sit up all night. I used to sit up all night and watch the bedroom door just in case Mum left.
3: Yeah, and it's a and strange like, thing. It's a you it's, know it's how can, sad isn't thing. that
2: wild that we're yeah. such little kids and yeah. we think that we have the power to get in the way of
3: what two powerful adults yeah. want to do. You know, and it's a funny thing because I wrote lyrics about this and, and I have to, I always say this when I talk about my poor dad. He just, I'm sure he just has a heart attack every time I ever do an interview because unfortunately his story is my story and he is absolutely a recovered alcoholic. He's a, you know, he has an incredible life. We aren't in each other's lives, but I'm very proud of him because he survived all of this stuff. But, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for parenting. I'm not a parent. You know, I have enough trouble being a parent to a dog. The responsibility, Our, I don't know about your parents, but from my generation, my mum was 24 with three children. Um, Brisbane style. Brisbane style-y. <laughs> and the, the amount of pressure um, I think placed on them as young people to be grown-ups. One of the biggest freak-outs I have in my life is when I'm, I remember that I'm supposed to be a grown-up. You know, oh my God, I have to fill in this form or I've got to do my taxes or... Gulp! I have to act responsible. Um, so I have sympathy for them for that. However, I never realized until I had a lot of therapy that most children sort of feel safe. It's kind of the whole deal with childhood. That's what you're supposed to get on the tin. All you've got to do is feed them, make them feel loved and safe. And if you can give them some consistency, hey, then they can create their own lives. Well, guess what? We didn't feel safe. You know, when you come from any kind of uh, turbulent family childhood, you internalize that. And I was probably a five or six-year-old child essentially dealing with anxiety disorders. I didn't know what that was called at the time. I used to think I was psychic um, because I, I, th- I thought it was magical because I could tell when my father was going to go off on one. In retrospect, it's just because I could hear the slur in his voice. But I didn't know what drunk was. You know, I didn't know what tension was. I just knew that feeling as a child, thinking, um, at any point, my whole life could just go down the drain. So I better be on high alert.
2: That yeah. that place of, of, and particularly, I was because I was. I remember it being. It's nothing like what you're describing, but I remember being bullied at school for being the fat kid, and you know, acting out at school because I was afraid of what was happening at home, and then getting home, where it's supposed to be the safe place, and then. It's not. And then, I don't know, I'm eight or nine,'re just like, "Well, where, where is safe?" Where, yeah. Do you remember the first time you felt safe?
3: Like coming home going, "Ah.: oh. Yeah, I do." And it's quite sad, actually. It's when we lived in a caravan park. We left my dad, and uh, apparently, I peed the bed every night for six months. I used to have nightmares, but uh, we lived in a trailer park in the suburb of springwood i think and we were by all accounts absolutely poverty stricken happiest memories of my life until i met richard because i was safe every night i knew i had my mum, i had my sister I had my brother I had my star wars toys um and i knew that that feeling and danger and anxiety couldn't find me yeah
2: were there other kids in the caravan park that were different from the kids at school
3: uh, we we led a pretty sheltered life. Again, it's funny because I adore my mum; she's just incredible. But she was raised as sort of a failed Catholic, and so there was always this. Uh, my sister and I were talking about this recently in our family. We were raised with this distrust of everybody. You couldn't trust anybody. I mean, mostly because you had to lie to authorities or to the police or whatever. So there was always this feeling of not trusting anyone. So at that point in my life, I didn't we didn't really interact with other people again because people might ask questions. Right. You know, it was a bit like being in a Harrison Ford, you know, film or witness or the, you know, relocation program. Yeah. Living there. Um, But yeah, I had that thing that you had at school where, um, I mean, look, it's human nature. My dad used to um, uh, breed exotic birds illegally, which was hilarious. So we always Again, had to, yeah, Brisbane, had, totally. <laughs> so Brisbane. We had like the whole, like the we had like a bird sanctuary in the backyard, um, but we would always lie and say we just had one budgie. Um, but
2: meanwhile, there's a McCall waking up every morning.
3: Exactly. I don't even know where this is going, but getting picked on at school was definitely um, a, a shared thing that, that we that we had in common. Yeah. Um,
2: so as you became, and I, like, here's the thing: like my brothers and I. I'm one of three, boy, one of four boys. Where do you fit in the scale? I'm number two.
3: Ah, oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. What's your star sign? I'm an Aries. Okay, Taurus, and I'm the youngest. But continue. Right, my older brother's a Taurus. Mm. We are 23 months apart. So for one blissful month of the year, I'm only one year younger than him. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm going to be
3: 40 in seven weeks. I can't wait. I I said the same thing, and. Uh, we do it to women a lot. We very rarely do it to men. But I guess when you're in our field, people do it to us a lot where people say, oh, goodness, how do you feel? And it's almost like they're, they're trying to break some bad news to well, you. Well, mate, I get it. Look, I get it. You
2: know, here, uh, that's why I'm, you know, I'm, produ- I'm pursuing producing television here. There's
3: definitely ageism yeah. in our yeah. industry. Totally,
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I at one point turned up and I was the guy that took the job from the guy who was 40. Right. When I showed up.
3: Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the way it is. Yeah. It's
2: okay. Yeah, It's, it's, it's all right.
3: It's, I uh, say that about pop music too. A lot of people, um, and fans are incredible, um, and they take up a cause for you and they will often say, you know, oh, it's a travesty that you don't get played on the radio. And I've always understood that pop music is a youth market. You know, If I was programming a radio station, um, I wouldn't play a Madonna record or a U2 record or a Prince record. They're three of my favourite artists in the history of the world, but they're too damn old for pop pop music. I get it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. That music, especially music and fashion, you know, they're so that hook is so tied into that glory of youth, mm-hmm. you know, and that emancipation from. Well, that's what you're buying when you yeah, buy the song. Freedom. My God, when I
2: put on Carly Rae Jepsen's "Call Me Maybe," I felt like I was seventeen again. Yeah. yeah. And it's you know, and I'm. Unashamedly in love with pop when it's that good, yeah. when it's that damn good. Yeah. I love it. I, I there's nothing quite like that when you when you hear that song and it's just.
3: Even the bass line's a hook. He (laughs) preached into the converted. I mean, it's funny, Richard, my husband, is quite cool. He's so much cooler than me, and when I first met him, he... um, He's sitting
2: behind you on my couch, taking notes and nodding. He's judging us. (laughs) No, he's agreeing with when you say, he's really cool. He's like, yes, yes, Well, he was
3: never, you know, he's not a sycophant. He was aware of my music, but he certainly was never... He would never have bought my records, ever. But beautifully, um, he's really proud of me, and, you know, obviously, he gets it. He's not a, a prat. But, um... It's funny, Richard loves that song, Call Me Maybe, and Richard's quite indie. And when we first heard it, it was just one of those songs that was like, this is sort of undeniable, isn't it? This you can't, is, this you can't is go cool. past it.
2: It's like, I'm going to say, like, not since perhaps Mbop has there been a pop song that's just so, there's, or Baby from Bieber. Like, this is a track that is just a monster.
3: Yeah, you know, I kind of agree, definitely. Mbop is... Uh, And God, let's write. I mean... I think before Um Mbop, there was only Walking on Sunshine. So basically, we have one every decade. Pretty much.
2: Yeah. But the the wild thing is, just as as an aside, Walking on Sunshine, which I found when I did work experience at school, which is, uh, I guess, in Australia, it's like the version of being an intern in high school. Mm -hmm. I did work experience at the recording studio up at Channel 9, which was essentially like I'm going onto the mothership. I am, you know, oh my God, I'm at a proper recording studio. And the producer there was telling me that that song, Katrina, the way I walking on sunshine actually came, it was recorded two and a half years prior hmm. when Depeche Mode were doing digga, 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 right. digga, I'm so sad and everything too bad. And they're like, we can't release it. It's too, it's too up. It's, it's too, too good. Happy. So I sat on it for like two years and then released it because it was just, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked.
3: Yeah. It's something people forget too, like about films and books and fashion is that uh it's a cliche, but you know, when you see the cart, when you're following a trend, it's dead. By the time you see the trend, you've read those books, but you know, by the time you see a trend, that's the tail end of it because the inception of trend, it comes from uh, almost like subconscious stuff. It's out there in the ether. It's stuff that people are picking up. My whole career is a result of that where music had been um, Seattle rock or indie. So you had the, the pop music was Alanis and it was angsty, or um stuff on the radio was Nirvana or Seattle. So to be these two sort of um you know, effeminate men from Brisbane in makeup, one of them gay, the other one just kind of people assuming he was gay, he's he's not. Uh you know, that was just never gonna happen. We could not get signed. It was like, Are you kidding me? No. What is this is too nice, it's too pop, it's too this, and then suddenly it was you know, the whole world was And that's why I'm I'm just so lucky to have to have you here in my house
2: because I was there. I had a front row seat watching it all go down. and I was playing in bands at the same time. Here's something that will blow your mind. As I was getting ready for this, I was researching and I was remembering I once answered, uh, I think the name, it was a Music Works so or the, whatever the radio, the, the music store was there on Brunswick Street. Um, I answered an ad hmm. to be the bass player in a band called Red Edge. No. Yep.
3: Okay, this is so weird. Okay. I know.
2: And that was the band that you answered an ad
3: in Time Off magazine to be the singer for. Yes. And we both got duped. So Red Edge was um, essentially Daniel Jones and his brother Oliver Jones. um, Both. I think I
2: spoke to Daniel on the phone.
3: Yeah, me too. I'm I'm pretty sure. But then when he said, oh, we're we're just doing
2: covers. And I was like, nah, okay, not for me. Yeah. And I I said, no, it's not my
3: bag. Red Edge, um, no disrespect terrible covers band that I was a part of there was
2: a lot of it going around the early 90s man it's it was okay.
3: horrible this was before DJs before pioneer CDJs people had to get people in the club door but this is why Daniel was definitely like a Simon Cowell like a Sven Gali, because he was in that terrible band they were trying to get a publishing deal and uh, you were replaced or your position that you went for was uh, filled by a guy called Jamie Sullivan and they we got a duo we got Jamie and Scott Sullivan Scott played drums Jamie played bass. Uh, Oliver Rich, um, Oliver uh, Jones was, is an incredibly talented musician, actually. Daniel would probably even admit that Oliver is really the musician in the family, um, incredible guitarist, and wrote all these songs. And they, they asked me to be in that band, uh, and I hated it. But it was a year of um, an incredible like workplace experience for so me. So let me
2: guess. Um, Mary Street?
3: Nothing ever that cool. No, Beanley, Ta- H- Beanley no, no, no. Tavern? Occasionally the Beanley Tavern, but actually northern New South Wales. Oh, Cougars RSM? Uh, potentially. The, 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 Lismore. Yeah. I forget what it was called in Lismore, but our biggest, we, we went off in Lismore.
2: Is it like 92, 93?
3: Yeah. yeah. Our, I eventually quit that band because you two were coming to town. Yeah. And uh, I was part-timing it as Santa Claus at the Maya Centre for Maya. I was working part-time as a Santa Claus that year. 70, what, are you, were you with like 18? 75 bucks an hour, put on a fat suit, Santa. Uh, the weekend's playing in Red Edge and I hated it. And they got a gig to go out to Ayers Rock and I was just done. And there's only so many times you can sing. You in. two at ANZ Stadium? Uh, I, yes. I yeah. was there. Yeah, it was an incredible show. And, and, the, then,
2: and the finale where the antennas went up and they played like a 15-minute version of Bullet the Blue Sky.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just the future of rock. I, and the, the short story is I end up. The man who directed that show is one of my dearest friends, and now he's direct Willie Williams, and he's directed every show of my whole career. From, from but I was this child fanboy, wrote him a letter, but um, yeah, that whole thing was um, kind of crazy. But how weird! You could have been in Red Edge. We could have we could have been something.
2: In my in 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 over, how shall we say it, maybe 10 years ago Mm -hmm. when I finally figured it out.
3: Mm. Oh, shit. That was that
2: bad. I was all bitter. It's so crazy. I I hated
3: myself that I didn't go for the gig. Even within their family, that kind of lightning strikes randomness. If you think about it, there was always a tension between those two brothers because the lightning bolt struck Daniel. But Oliver had done all the hard work. Oliver was there. He (sighs) was co-writing all those songs. The band was really his and Daniel's baby and uh daniel almost severed relationships with all of his friends and, and and his brother by hiring me i came in you know everyone was a bit put out but the publishing companies were saying you don't have a lead singer you know they were saying olive's voice isn't isn't and he has an incredible voice but they just didn't think he was a star and that's how i was hired i was this country bumpkin no experience i could just sing like an angel Bright red, red faced, nervous, bumbling, fumbling nerd. But Daniel saw something in me and just went, I'm going to attach myself to this. And I'm glad he did. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and so, as you, I'm guessing with the shame you spoke of earlier, there was
3: shyness. Yeah. And I think that I developed my career now really to combat that. I mean, <laughs> I laugh about this that uh, at the height of being picked on at school, so by the time I, I've entered grade eight, um, I was so severely picked on, like physically picked on. And I mean, it was, it was horrible actually. I can't even really joke about it. It was, I I would like to, but it was horrible. And, uh, I, around that time, I think it was 87 and Michael Jackson's bad was released. And, uh, I mean, look, I get it. I didn't even get that there was anything that was slightly threatening from a gender point of view. I looked at him and went, you're so strange. And I, You're my hero. And this music video was about how Michael was getting picked on. So what does he do? He just makes a few dance moves and then falls out of the ceiling in a fabulous outfit. And he, you know, he dances them to death. I fantasized about that. I would listen to that record and think, you don't know how special I am. You don't know that I'm magical. And one day, you know, you're going to basically be kissing my ass. And they did. Ah, I love it. But that, yeah, that that period um, was really just me saying that when I'm on stage and when I sing, I'm more confident and I become someone else. It's obviously all just an act, but it definitely saved, uh, I think it saved me. It was was this uh, similar thing of childhood when, uh, you know, as a child, I could use my imagination to sort of escape. Um, I think I escaped a lot of stuff, bullying, uh, dealing with being gay, all of it. I just became someone else
2: do you and look thank you for sharing this stuff about that's your i know it's, look, I've I've it's stuff, tough time, but yeah. i just know that some people listening you know like even me as you're discussing it you're talking about i'm like oh that's right that happened to me too there may mm-hmm. be some people who are feeling triggered right now um, there may also be some people Who are listening like That's happening to me Right now like, Exactly like, And what would you say To like someone Who's like still at home
3: And still living in an environment That is dangerous it's To talk to anyone I mean it's interesting Before you talk You sort of tried to Downplay your experience and I, and I always say this There'll always be A worse story than yours And there'll always be A story that mightn't seem As severe But um, You know Everyone's journey Is their journey And it's about How it affects you And how you feel in the world talk to people it's the craziest thing isn't it that you think on the other side of a conversation is sort of uh, emancipation but through embarrassment or shame or whatever we're always so afraid to reach out if you're a young person um teachers guidance counselor i mean i had all those um adults in my life and i'm sure they would have been so willing to help me if i just reached out but i didn't you know i'm lucky that there's something in me um that's sort of like a survivor but that's like a mutant gene I, I had to sort of create that like bruce banner in a lab i don't know how i did it but that saved my life but a lot of kids don't have that yeah
2: yeah so do you remember the moment that you stood on stage and so you're singing someone else's words mm-hmm. you not even your words you're singing someone else's words do so you remember the moment you stood on stage and it all clicked
3: for the first time I remember a period I just know that I could tell you that when I first started I used to feel embarrassed and unworthy and I have memories of just having we would do 3 one hour sets uh and you know in each set there's probably 12 15 songs. God, it's such a
2: grind. The covers, these don't exist anymore, I don't think, these kind of gigs. Like the covers scene, I remember being, I was a roadie. This is how, what it turned out. I was a roadie for bands like that. I was the lighting guy. I got two hernias and hearing damage from, just, (laughs) I was 17. And I would, they would play, there was one gig in Rockhampton at a place called Flamingos. And it was five 50 minute sets. That started at
3: eight forty-five. Do you know what I think? We did something like that, yeah. And
2: you ended at two thirty, and it was just a barn. There must have been eleven hundred people in there, and it just stank of watered-down Jim Beam and forex
3: by fire. It's an incredible education, and when you first start off, it's a grind. Uh, you feel lucky to be there. You can't. You don't think you'll ever get through it. I used to just think I would want to vomit from nerves, and I knew that it was over when I just knew that I was bored. And I didn't want to sing anyone else's songs anymore. I thought I was, well, it was the development of the rock star ego, but I thought I was cooler than it, and that was the whole point of doing that because you, you had to think that you were cooler than it in order to graduate from it and want to, you know, want to be something else.
2: It was like I, t- I tell people all the time: eventually, the chef wants to open his own restaurant. It's going to happen. Yeah. Eventually, the hairdresser is going to open their own salon. Yeah. Or go so far as to put out their own line. Mm.
3: Like it's gonna, it, it happens. And, and that's how it happens in music and it's okay. Yeah, it happens in everything, I, I think. it's. Um, I understand now that if there's a purpose to sort of being an animated object, to being alive, uh, it's to be the best possible version of yourself. I couldn't agree more. That you can be. Absolutely. And it's a real, it's a real blessing and I think you fall out in your life when you're showing away from that stuff. I talk a lot about um, a perceived line of difficulty You know, uh, which keeps a lot of kids from going to get that record deal or auditioning for a TV show or going for that job they want or asking that girl out on a date, whatever. You you think that, uh, oh, no, they'll just turn me down or it won't happen or whatever. But it's just an illusion. And I think that idea of just stepping over, I hate to tell you, but it's exactly the same on the other side of the perceived line of difficulty. It's the same grass, the same air, same everything, same challenges. Only now because you've decided to see yourself as as winning everybody else goes oh yeah that's right he's a winner i mean americans do it great we turned up here and you know for the last year or so i've been studying um sketch comedy i've been at the groundlings theater and doing actor training and doing auditions and going out on pilot season haven't booked a job yet but i literally turned up walked into my agency and said i'm an actor now and they went yeah cool and there was just no – because I had decided that this is what I'm doing now. But you know what?
2: <laughs> you have just described why I love living in America. Right. That's why I, I fucking love living well, you here. you can be – Because they go, really? Mm-hmm. Then great. Yeah. It's a, it's a culture that celebrates success
3: and it's a culture that celebrates you want to have a go? Then
2: I'm here with you. Let's go. Let's do it together.
3: It's deeply ingrained in um, migration. And we, we talk about this a lot because the negative uh, perception – When you think – if you want to criticize Americans, it's really easy to say, oh, they're brash or they're arrogant or whatever. But if you break all of that down, it actually – my experience is it's this innocent belief that anybody can be anything because, you know, half the people in this country, their relatives died just trying to cross it, just trying to get from one side to the other. That, you know, that idea, here we are in California, the promised land, the city of angels, the city of dreams – it was for so many people who came over from war-torn countries or from poverty-stricken countries. It was this promise of a new life. And when they got here, what did they get? A freaking desert with rocks. And impossible mountains between here and there. And then it's like, <laughs> okay, how do we make this work? Yeah. And, you, and it was by sheer perseverance. And that, yeah. that's been bred into Americans from a cellular oh, yeah. level. Oh, yeah. For their level.
2: youngest kids, have it. It blows my mind. Yeah. Little kids have it. It's not a bad thing. Um, you can find Darren on Twitter, at Darren Hayes, and his podcast, you can find it on iTunes. It's Talk, Talk, Talk with Darren Hayes. Um, it's a great listen. I highly recommend it. I do want to tell you, though, one thing, and it was, it was before that book, The Secret. It was before mm-hmm. I knew anything about putting something out to the universe I was watching an interview with you. And like I said, like, let me just quick backstory. Like I was, so there was the moment where I wasn't the bass player in your cover band, (laughs) but then I was in a band and we were grinding through that same machine that you were grinding through Mm -hmm. meeting those, what was his name? Mick at Warners and all those guys, (laughs) Joe from Sony, all those people. Like, this is how you get a record deal. And like, we were, we were playing gigs and we were trying to Tina arena's managers just called us back. We were trying to make it all happen. Mm -hmm. And then when you got signed, um, I remember the story was like, you had, the band was Bliss, is that correct? Was that the right yeah, word? Yeah, at the time, yeah. I think the yeah. name we had, the demo was Bliss. Yeah, right. two names, and but yeah. I remember the story was that you'd sent out, I think, like 150 mm-hmm. cassettes. Yep. This is old, old school. Yeah. And one person called you back. Yeah. And that was...
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a slightly, yes, but that's essentially what happened. We, well, what, what, Truthfully, what happened was actually we got 149 rejection letters, literally. Like every if everyone, Dennis Hanlon, every single person, even Molly Meldrum, every single person that could have given us a green light said no. And we got a manager by essentially um, lying. So Ralph Carr had returned our call and never followed up. And we called up John Woodruff and said, listen, John, we think we're going to go with Ralph. So we'll uh, just putting that out there, Um, we're seeing him next week and he went, hang on, let me get on a plane. And that's how we got John Woodruff to sign us. We didn't get a record deal. He couldn't get us signed in Australia. He had to go to America. Uh, And it was Clive Davis who flew us over and started a a bit of a bidding war. And then... um,
2: Hang on uh, one second. Yeah. So
3: what does the kid from the caravan park
2: in Springwood think when he's living inside this man that's meeting Clive
3: Davis? Uh, That he... (laughs) Uh, but that point in my life that, uh, that I was born to do it, oh. by that point, I, the, the whole process had occurred where I, from the minute I decided to leave Red Edge, dye my hair black, it was already black by that point, my ear was pierced, I essentially looked like Bono. I started dressing and looking and being like a rock star. And I guess it's what, like you talked about, about The Secret, you know, often the idea of positive attraction is that you start experiencing the joy that you want now. You start living the life that you want to live. So if you don't have that job you get up every day and dress like you do and you attract that energy around you. I did that when I walked into, we were eventually signed to village roadshow, which was a disappointment at the time because they were not a record label and still aren't ironically, they signed one of the most successful Australian artists that ever was. And that was it. And they signed us, but uh, I, (laughs) I, I walked into those offices in my op shop clothing, my vintage, if you will, clothing my jet black hair, my single 90s earring, my swagger, and I owned it. And I absolutely believed that I deserved to be there, and that I was a, a fucking star. And it turns out that you you were. It happened. It happened yeah. <laughs> yeah. It did. It happened Which, to be that I became one. But yeah.
2: yeah. So having a front row seat to it and also being around that, you know, inside the Brisbane music scene and, you know, the words that, you know, Brisbane being Brisbane and the opposite of what we just discussed mm-hmm. about the Australian attitude towards success, mm-hmm. which at the time, I'm sure it's different now, but at the time it was, uh, who are these guys, who are these guys from bloody Springwood, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't, I just remember just being just so thrilled that you'd done it. And I remember you sitting, the two of you, it was an afternoon, it was about four in the afternoon. You were doing an interview in the studio A at B105 and you were both wearing black head to toe very (laughs) very black you're doing this interview I was like dude they did it they did it and then about a year later or two years later I think I remember it was a 60 minute story about you Uh and I can't remember it exactly but there was something about this is what I'm saying is before I had any idea about putting out a positive intention or what you're describing living into the success that's yet to manifest didn't you like
3: write a note on a piece of paper and like throw it behind a cupboard or something That's so great that you brought that up. Daniel actually did that. And I have to say, his family taught me so much about that. That boy, um, we aren't in contact, but he manages to be successful in most things he does because he was raised to believe that he could be and do anything. And his parents taught us so much about that. I didn't really have that confidence um, when I first met him. And on the other side of it, the influence of his family and seeing a really tight nuclear family too. You know,
2: uh, Isn't that weird? Like when you go to other people's houses, they're like, hang on, so when dad comes home, no one no one else is freaked yeah. out? Everyone's actually <laughs> happy when dad comes home? Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, Okay. And after dinner, everything,
3: we just laugh? Right. Wow. this Oh, okay. But Daniel, <laughs> Daniel did that in a very physical and uh, to the T, like, you know, intention. But I did it on a very energetic level and I realized I had always practiced uh, positive attraction and positive intentions and putting – intentions out to the universe my whole life um, from the minute that I just thought you will kiss my ass one day I mean to flash forward from the Michael Jackson story where I'm a kid watching Michael turn into something fabulous and dance his enemies to death to um, being p- stopped on the, r- on the side of the road by someone flashing their lights at me on my way to sound check at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre where I had 10 years beforehand I'd seen Michael perform and thought I'm going to do this one day And one of the kids who picked on me stepped out of the car and he said, I I have to apologise to you. I'm so sorry for what I did to you. And I was like, I didn't even know why I pulled my car over. I just thought it was the police or someone flashing me. And he apologised. And then that night at the entertainment centre, he was in the front row screaming for me like a girl, like this screaming teen girl, straight guy, just absolutely a fanatical fan. And talk about sort of a, a weird circle of completion. I didn't get pleasure in it. I actually had a lot of compassion for him at the time. I've got goosebumps you're yeah. telling me that story. I went, I yeah, was, so, he was, that you pulled over and then he said... He, I, I want to apologize to you for picking on you. Oh yeah, God. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. But you, I, I, I definitely <sighs> accept that. Yeah, you know, I, I accept that I created all of that. I also accept that I created a lot of the, the sadness and the chaos and things that, didn't work out in my life as well. I think it's a two-way street if you believe in creation and manifestation yeah. and all of that stuff. Um, you can't get off the hook. You have to, when things aren't showing up for you, you really have to look and go, hmm, what is my core belief here? Well, what's my role in it? What What am I ordering up? <laughs> yeah. and often it's, 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 it's all the stuff, all the beliefs that you have. Yeah. Just, they're just a mirror.
2: I remember watching... The 97 Arias, when you absolutely just demolished. I remember that. I remember being present, like for the first time, like the next day, people on the radio grumbling that you and I were robbed. I'm like, fuck you. That I was what? That you and I were robbed. Oh, right, yeah. And you won 10 Arias that night. This is the Australian Recording Industry Awards, uh, in my opinion, the deadliest of any award. They were about four kilograms. They're a yes, pyramid. Absolutely. Can could, be used as a weapon. Lady
3: Gaga uh, would wear them as shoes. Or
2: earrings. Earrings. Or a, brassiere. A brassiere. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and I remember the next day going, why, why are people hating on these? You don't win 10 arias by accident. Right. You don't, win, you don't have the industry all at once, as once, stand on their feet and go,
3: this is the best thing that happened to Australian music this year. By accident. Yeah, I mean, it was a strange thing too, because it, it, as we said before, that it, we certainly weren't welcomed with open arms. It, it was a begrudging admittance, I think, of success. And pr- to be c- completely honest, immediately after that moment, that was when a backlash began. Our second record, I remember it was I Knew I Loved You was the first single. And even we knew, I mean, that single was written really as a, as a sort of an FU to the record company that wanted another sappy ballad. And, uh, We just didn't write sappy ballads. I wrote sincere pop songs and I wasn't in love. I hated love. I was writing songs like Gunning Down Romance. Um, But I remember when we delivered that and we got a a bit of sort of backlash in Australia because it wasn't hip and it wasn't cool and some other artists were trashing us. And I remember thinking, that's so uncool. Like I wouldn't do that to another artist. Why why is this happening? Um, And it was only – that song became another – number one in America that Australia were like, um, well, not fans. There's a huge separation between your audience and the gatekeeping of, which is PR and, yeah. and media. But the media at that time was very much like, yeah, they're not going to be able to repeat this. Um, and we did. Wait. But you know, Sorry,
2: sorry, I can't hear you. I've got Billboard Awards stuck in my ears. Yeah, I apologize. But it was,
3: <laughs> there was definitely that feeling of like, well, they've outstayed their welcome. You,
1: know?
3: ah.
2: yeah. um, you mentioned it just briefly with this, Gent that you went to school with But I'm always fascinated by I've only done it like A handful of times Maybe five times Mm -hmm. Have I stood on stage Like Here's the thing Most people have a hard time When Someone they Don't really know that well Or vaguely know Is staring at them Right What's It do to you When you're standing on stage And there's 20,000 people Staring at you What's it like being The receptor Of that energy What does it you What does it feel like?
3: It actually feels more like you are a conductor. It, it's in of an orchestra. No, like a conductor of, of that electricity, ah. or like you are a part of a fuse. It's absolutely electrifying. I can understand. I've never had an issue with drugs or substance or anything, but I can understand why a lot of performers do because it's it's such an incredible high, um, and not it's not the attention that you get because honestly, the attention I got over that very quickly. The minute I became famous. I didn't care about fame anymore. And I think now, if you look back at my career, you realize that I've never been a celebrity. I've, done, I've made a lot of choices in my life that have made my career more difficult because I, I've never wanted to be a celebrity. But the, the, the flip side to that is this adoration and this love and this position you're in where people are, are looking up at you adoringly. And it's, it's like the essence of love. It's an incredible privilege an incredible privilege and I to this day it still really touches me because I know how much of my heart I gave to my idols as a kid and um, I feel that I see that in all of my fans my audience I've grown up with them now and they've stuck with me through so much that um, I don't know it's really emotional it's like family
2: how does like but at the end of the night you mentioned the substance abuse Mm. uh, that other artists have you know
3: well documented uh, oh, my, my thing was cake I'm just right. the John Travolta of pop Not in that way But in between records I would often get fat right. Because food was my That was my thing That was your you thing. Know, My release But yeah
2: But at the, at the end of the night Like You know Say for example Like after this conversation You guys mm. will leave yeah. And I'll glow for a little while Because yeah. we had a really interesting exchange <laughs> Yeah I, right? I already feel like I have an interesting energy within me Because you know There's yeah. something going on here at the end of the night, and I remember this, like when I got off stage, when I was playing in my band, and then when we were doing those idol shows, like every Sunday night, there's 800 people in the crowd, we're going live, there's two and a half million people watching, or then mm-hmm. when we're doing the live stuff, when there's like 10,000 people, I'm at the fucking opera house, mm-hmm. ah, and getting off stage, it's like, it's like a hot plate that you're not cooking on anymore, but it's still hot, yeah. and it is for a while, yeah. like... There's few people that can understand what's going on. You'd be standing at the corner just breathing. You're like, what's wrong? It's like, I'll just,
0: I just need a second here.
3: Yeah, I mean, this sounds negative, but it's the truth. Um, it can be quite lonely. I think you relate to that because when you're a performer, you, um, you're put in that electric position. I remember I hadn't really felt that fever. Hold up.
0: What was that?
3: Uh, until very recently, I went home and did some stuff on the voice. And when they were amping the crowd up before the show, and they brought sort of guest mentors in, I was one of the four people. And I felt that surge of being in an arena and that energy from the crowd—that's like a tidal wave. I mean, you're a surfer; you understand that, that that whole thing of, you know, sometimes you can feel the tide. The tide, you can feel the moon. You can—that's what a crowd feels like to you. And when it's gone. And you go back to your hotel room. Or in my case, when I go back to my lovely husband, we make a cup of tea. And he, as someone who trained as a director, is very aware of that come down because it's suddenly you crash into being mortal. I remember saying um, to a therapist once, you know, that I was considering just opening up a cake shop or something, a bar or whatever, just getting out of it. And he said to me, Darren do you really think that you could be mortal again? <laughs> and he was deadly serious. And he was like, seriously, I want you to consider this. You lead a very magical life. And what we do for a living involves that experience you're talking about, which is that surge of an exchange of energy. Mm. He was like, do you really think that you could live without that? And the jury's still out on that, but I, I suspect probably not. <laughs> Did...
2: Because Savage Garden went bonkers in about every country at once.
3: Yeah, it was intense.
2: Did it ever get overwhelming? Did you ever go? Yeah,
3: of course. Um, I mean, again, I don't know if it was a wish on my part. I I think to a certain degree um, I was saved a lot. I'm not Justin Bieber or Britney or Madonna or anybody that's had to feel that almost like that radiation of fame i've had spurts of it but i can understand how it can feel crushing if it's taken away from you because you obviously don't have any control over it i had such a detachment to fame it was happening to somebody else that when our reign ended i was completely prepared for it i remember sitting down with willie williams and he said to me you have to make peace with the fact that savage garden is probably going to be the most successful thing you've ever been involved in. So everything else from now on has to be a completely new adventure. And I really did subscribe to that. Um, Had I lived my life thinking, oh, I'm never going to get another number one or or whatever, I would have been miserable and bitter. But I never saw that as um, a continuum. I mean, I studied fame as well and I looked at, I know I keep referencing Michael, but he is the, sort of the poster child for how it, it's essentially cancer and it can kill you. Mm. There's a minute. The Spike Lee's got an incredible documentary about this moment when Bad was released. It was coming off the back thriller. Everyone was saying he's never, ever going to top the record. He didn't, and that was a demon that sort of haunted Michael to, to the grave, I think, because it only became the second biggest-selling album of all time. <laughs> um, but at the time people were talking about fame as this tiny gap in the door that opens for a second and you just have to run through it and eventually the door closes it happens to every career and it's how you navigate through that how you evolve what your definition of success is i think that defines how the experience leaves you in the end
2: oh cause I was, I want, i'm glad you brought that up because i wanted to ask you about it. i mm. mean, like those moments i was just describing on idol like i just have to you know i was thinking about it when i was you know ready, getting ready for this is that Australian television is never going to be the same as it was 10 years ago when Idol was on. There's now multi-channels. The internet has taken over from you know downloading has you know changed how people watch TV. Mm-hmm. And that, no matter how big a show I ever do in Australia, it will never, ever be as big. Hmm. Ever. It just won't happen. The industry is different. It will never happen. It will never be as big as that first and second season of Idol. And now I'm okay with it. But for a long time, it really fucking bug me, that I would probably never have that again.
3: And I love that you say that and admit that because, um, again, to go back to shame, um, I have struggled with that definition of success in terms of, um, you know, just hitting a home run. Hitting, you know, when you're on idle and you're the biggest thing ever and, I mean, it's so interesting because I watched your transformation as well. Um, I remember just turning up one day and you were a star. So at one point you were someone that I met at radio stations and then you were somebody that did really fun, sort of humble interviews. You were always humble and lovely. But then one day I turned up and you looked like a million bucks. (laughs) (laughs) But something had, a light had turned on in you. Right. I imagine it's because you gave yourself permission to be that person. And it was, a, it was a really, I don't know, but there was definitely something that, was, that you want to be around. And I think that is how we fall in love. I think that's how genuine intention manifests itself. Wow. Like, Do you want to know the truth? Yeah.
2: The truth is, and I, I've never talked about this, that coping mechanism you described earlier, mm-hmm. what you saw was my coping mechanism at full strength.
3: Okay, so what was happening outside of life was so uh difficult that I was so just became terrified titanium. I was
2: so terrified of
3: everyone and mm. everything that the only way I could leave the house was to put that on to become him uh-huh yeah i mean i have we haven't spoken about this, but I was so touched by your name change, and i completely re- i found it really emotional and I completely related uh-huh. to it and um for People listening to your podcast know about it, I guess. But just that idea that you can attach an energy to an identity or a name. uh, And I completely relate. I completely relate. I mean, I've done the same thing in terms of my own... I mean, I can't tell you how many times people say to me, you look better with black hair you know what I know I look better with black hair I look more handsome when my hair is black because my eyes are blue and I understand what pop stars do and you have to look slightly unnatural and that's what's magical about it but guess what when I was that person I wasn't myself yeah so yeah
2: yeah I, I get it I'm, I'm and it's interesting you mentioned that because I yeah I, that man that I was the guy that you just described it's wild hearing you say that <laughs> Because I was so afraid, I was so afraid of everyone and everything of my, whatever was happening in my, in my life, my career, mm-hmm. that the only way I could get out of the house was by putting on the Iron Man suit and going.
3: I completely, I see it now. And, and then uh, yeah.
2: having to turn that down at the end of the day, well... It took, it took
3: a little more than a few deep breaths. I'll tell you that yeah, much. Down. No, I can imagine. I can, I can put imagine. Of things wave at an hour. Now that I drink, it's, things are great. It's <laughs> interesting though because it's also it, it's so linked uh, to your your concept of self-worth. I'll tell you where I'm at and maybe I'm just a couple of years ahead of you. Um, and I, First of all, I love the fact that, and I hope people are getting this, that again, it doesn't matter what your story is because everyone has a version of this. Yeah. We all evolve. We all have things we're terrified of. We all have to pass through fear, we all, we've all had experiences where we've become or acted other than who we are to, to, you know, to achieve things in our lives. Where I'm at at the moment is actually really embracing him, the person in the third per- oh. person, really um, looking back and loving the kid with the fat cheeks and the pale skin and the black hair, owning it, really owning it and having compassion for that and realising that that's a version of me. It's not... It isn't someone else because in some ways that success, if I separate myself from him, in some ways then I'm separating myself from that kind of success as well. And I'm not saying that I, I want... I mean, at the moment I don't even want to make records. I don't want to do anything musical at the moment. It's pissing my fans off. just doesn't turn me on. But I know it will turn me on if and when I make peace with him and... Uh, bring all that into the fold and make that part of the whole definition, the 3D definition of who I am as a human being. You know? I think when you survive, like you said, an alter ego, which um, you know, if you're not in the entertainment industry, we all have them. It's the personality you have at work. It's the personality you have in your relationship. Or it's your game you, face. Game face. You turn up with your game face. And it's what, what I've loved about getting older is that there's less... Uh, it, it, you become more and more authentic. Mm. I think I had
2: to learn my the doctor that pretty much saved me down in Sydney. He's an amazing guy. Uh, he was the Rolling Stones tour doctor. <laughs> he was he'd go on tour with the police, like he's that guy. He deals uh-huh. with he deals with people, and I will go on stage for a living. And he taught me that that coping mechanism, those things that I would do to be like when you start getting paid quite well to be the coping mechanism, it can prove some issues. Mm-hmm. But he said, there are things about that. And he said, you look at an Olympian weightlifter, right. someone that does the same thing, probably 75,000 times for one eight second competition in four years from now. Mm-hmm. You think there isn't a little bit of OCD in there? Right. He said, I have to teach these people how to use these things that they have when they need them and leave them when they don't. Yeah. And, after knowing him and through working with him, I've been able to keep those elements that, you know, because what's that Seinfeld line? The number one fear in the world is public speaking. The second is shark attack. People <laughs> would rather do this than be eaten by a shark. People would rather be eaten by a shark than stand here doing what I'm exactly. doing now. yeah. But it's never been a thing for me. I can walk out on a stage and here I am and yeah. let's have a chat. And that has always been really, I've been grateful for that that's. You know that's just been a thing that I've been able to do, and I need it when I need it, but I don't need it to stay alive like I used to.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about it, it brings up some sadness for me because I think um, that I relate that confidence to to a certain degree to um, surviving trauma, and it's part of my um, distancing, I think, from celebrity and and um, and the attention as I've gotten older because I realise that you know I don't I don't want to have to be that. The one thing I decided, no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to continue to reference Michael Jackson. One of the saddest things I ever saw was essentially the downfall of Michael Jackson. It was horrible to watch, wasn't it? You were in New York? I was here. I okay. was here on the day. Well, I was, I'm talking about the last live performance he ever gave. It was at a tribute concert, the 30th anniversary of, I think it was the Jacksons or something, but it was in Madison Square Gardens. And it was just before September 11th. Ironically, I was in New York and booked on a flight uh, on September eleven, would have crashed in a field um, near Washington. But I went and saw Michael, and it was heartbreaking and he couldn't do he couldn't perform like the athlete that people expected him to be, and it broke my heart, and I remember thinking people were treating him like a circus animal. And he needed to do the performances. He didn't want to do the performances. And it was like somebody just jangled the money and said, do it, perform, you know, and, uh, I left and my heart was a bit broken and we decided to change our flight and we came home and I'm here today, Michael Jackson isn't here today.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, but I always referenced that because recently a fan has uploaded some footage to YouTube and it's side stage of Michael doing the Billie Jean stuff and he's really struggling. And I remember thinking that I would rather be poor than have to get on stage and be him or do any of the things that I'm expected to do or make a record or whatever, unless I felt joy about it, unless I felt that it was coming from a place of just, I'm born to do this. And it's sort of what I'm trying to do in my life at the moment. I'm just... The reason we're in America is the same thing. Just went, you know what, I really, really, really miss that California sunset and I... I have an opportunity to be here, so I'm just going to chase it.
2: Um, I'm glad you talked about what it – particularly that thing that uh, you were told about success Mm -hmm. and that. Because I I was wondering, it's like, what's it like to wake up in the morning and go, I've been to number one in the U.S. not once but twice. 23 million people in this world own a piece of plastic with my name on it.
3: Like, I think it's 30 million. But But um, still, you know, I don't count. True. um grateful surreal grateful yeah and it's that thing you know and the that idea that we live in a world where selling those amount of units it's done it's no know, one will ever do that yeah well not like us but i mean people just don't buy pieces of plastic anymore mm. we're just content grateful feels grateful and surreal uh it's funny one of my favorite people in the world is the actress d wallace d uh has her own podcast show she affectionately will admit that she's a bit woo-woo. Dee's very spiritual. She's a healer. She's out there and I adore her. And um, she talks a lot about that idea of compliments and how you can't take... on well, The Four Agreements talk about this as well. It's a great book. A great book. But you can't take anything personally including a compliment The
2: second time today someone's told me
3: that mm-hmm. Joy who I had lunch with today told me exactly that including the compliments because we always think oh you can't take it personally when someone insults you but you can't take it personally when somebody says to you, you've had two number ones in America because then it starts to become a definition of your self worth yeah. and and the way I try to appreciate that stuff is to is to say I'm so grateful that I had that experience I'm not sad that it hasn't happened again, I'm not Um, bitter that I don't have those opportunities again. I'm open to it. i probably need to work on that because I don't even really want to do the work to have another number one single at the moment. But, you know, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: You can find Darren on Twitter. I highly recommend following him, at Darren Hayes. Uh, Listen to his podcast, Talk, Talk, Talk with Darren Hayes. It's in the iTunes store. It's a very special podcast where (laughs) we talk a lot. He talks like we're talking right now. Yeah, you talk a lot about this kind of stuff, which I'm for uh, regular folk. For, which I'm, but I'm very interested in. Um, you've mentioned in the past, and you you know you talked about this already that you struggle with depression. Totally, I can totally relate. I was <laughs> thinking about how to define my depression and anxiety. Like, I wake. I have an alarm clock. I don't fucking need it because I wake up at six fifteen every day. Wow. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but my my depression and anxiety is a little like. Remember Ralph. Ralphie Wolf and Sam the sheepdog. Remember that cartoon? They'd turn up and they'd clock in at the tree, Morning Sam, morning Ralph. And then they would go and one would go and chase sheep all day and the other one would punch him all day. And then at the end of the day they go, See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Like that's what that was their job. That's like me. Every morning I wake up and I look in the mirror. I'm like, Okay, boys, here we go. It's you and me. (laughs) It's like that's my that's how I have to look at it. It's like
3: we're all all day long, these guys are gonna be with me today, and that's just how it's gonna be today. Well We can talk about this. Um, I don't know if this is too personal for you because I can tell you I'm not on any medication. Me neither.
2: I talked about that last week. I have been at various points in my life.
3: Um, It really messed with my, again, my definition of self because um, I got over it and my message here is that everybody should just get over this judgment that you have that you think there's something that you should be able to cope without medication. That was difficult for me. I never wanted to be on medication because I didn't want it to dim my light or I didn't want to feel like I was a drug addict or I didn't want to feel like I was not strong enough to handle this on my own, but there were periods in my life and there probably still will be where I haven't been able to manage and cope. You know, I have a, a family history of, uh, I mean, my, um, my grandmother actually committed suicide. Oh. Uh, my, most people on my mother's side have really struggled with depression oh. and anxiety disorder anyway. So then I go and become a pop star, and then come out and just go through a lot of the stuff that I've experienced. Well, my anxiety and my depression always sh- depression always show up in periods of crisis, and uh, I just have to accept that. You know, it's just something I do. I'm really coming off um, antidepressants was scary. I've yeah. done it a few times, and I had I've had very. Uh, I ended up having uh, panic attacks a few times.
2: I so to circle back. Mm. when you mentioned it earlier i i think i was four or five when i had my first panic attack Wow. like that's that's what it was yeah. now i know when i knew what it was as an adult i was like oh that's the thing that used to happen when
3: i was a baby, mm-hmm. a kid
2: um i've only come off um medication once and that was enough for me uh, I'm yeah here, i'm here hard. now without it i work hard to stay off of it. i
3: would really like to be on it again <laughs> i really would but i have a great doctor that just said to me one day he was like darren you know, you don't need it. It's, it's a tool. It's a fantastic tool to help you yeah. essentially relax into deeper therapy. And um, being able to stabilize my moods helped me have pretty intense psychotherapy. And, uh, I've, you know, I've done everything I've had. Um, uh, well, I haven't done everything because I'm not. Well, I
2: related to like yeah. um, when I did my ACL, I, I blew out my ACL in my left knee. And I got to wear one of those kind of Mad Max 2 braces that you wear on the outside of your knee. It was this big robotic kind of Mm -hmm. metal hinge. Yeah, I would strap on on every morning. It was a little uncomfortable, but I could walk and it was great. And in the safety of that, my knee learned how to work in the right plane of motion again. The muscles came in in the right plane of motion. Great
3: metaphor, exactly.
2: And then slowly I would do more and more hours Mm -hmm. of a day without it. If I was going surfing or snowboarding or whatever, I'd wear it again if I was going somewhere. And eventually, and now I live without it. And that's how I would just—that's how I describe how being on meds is. Absolutely. It's not. I'll just take this and it'll go away. Like when I have a neurin for a headache. Right. It's not that. No. It's just releasing the grip enough so all the other work can do the job. Exactly. Because trying uh, to think your way out of thinking is like trying to bite your own
3: teeth. Totally. Oh god. <laughs> you should just write all of my metaphors. <laughs> uh, I do that. I, I do metaphor writing. If you like. It's a. Uh, it's actually quite an expensive service, um, and there's a discount for repeat customers. <laughs> The um, the biggest the, – one of the sweetest things anyone ever said to me actually was after I first went on antidepressants, uh, a friend who really noticed that there was something wrong with me, you know. Um, after maybe six months, she said to me, how do you feel now? Like how, how do you feel? Like do you still worry about stuff? And I went, well, yeah, but it's like – there's all the things that I'm concerned about and it's like they're in the spare room and I think, nah, I've got to do this and that, I've got to fill that format, have got to worry about this and oh, I think I'm getting some love handles and I need to... Th-. All the things that I would normally worry about They were there, but they were just kind of in another room. And she said, that's how the rest of us feel. Right. And it was such a moment of freedom because I was like, okay, I get it. It doesn't make your problems go away. It just gives you the ability to actually be rational. Yeah. Rational and realize... Bono's got that great lyric about uh, Michael Hutchins' the tragedy of suicide is that you get stuck in a moment where you think that you'll never be able to overcome the monster, and the sad truth is the next day you do, but when you're stuck in a moment and when you're dealing with depression and anxiety, you can't it feels s- permanent feels, it feels like, permanent. like it's never going to end
2: exactly it feels like it's never going to end
3: and uh It always ends. And there's a great documentary called The Bridge about people that um, try to take their lives off the Golden Gate Bridge. It's um, a lot of people obviously die, but there are a lot of survivors. And every single survivor has always said one of their final thoughts just before they hit the water was, I don't want to do this. Oh, God. And if you know that, you know, that's such a nice saving grace to know that, you know, you can't take that shit back just there's there's always all those metaphors and cliches about how there are cycles of life how you know there's no rainbow without rain these are the they're, they're cliches for a reason because they're true there is always a sunset and there's always a sunrise and stuff passes you know this too shall pass the i often say to people on my show that um if you are here and you're listening to the show you have survived everything that's ever been thrown at you That's true, wow. And you would not look back on anything that happened in your life and think, well, I wish I'd jumped off then. No one thinks that. There's no point you can rewind in the DVR of your life and think, yeah, I should have just erased all these last 15 years. You would, if you were honest, find moments of joy that you would regret having not experienced. And that's that's what keeps me here, for sure.
2: You talk about... um being in in the pursuit of more joy in your life. Mm-hmm. When did that become an active, like, you know what?
3: This is what I'm going to do. Three years ago, I came off stage and um, I fell into Richard's arms and I bawled my eyes out and I just said I didn't want to do it anymore. And I drove home experiencing that feeling. Or I didn't drive home, but we got home off the tour bus And it was like 3 a.m. in London and uh, I drove around and I drove past Big Ben. It was 3 in the morning and I called up my childhood friend and uh, I was so lost. I just had no idea who I was or what I was going to be and what was going to happen. And I realized that it had stopped becoming fun and it was just a job. And I thought my fans deserve more than that. I deserve more than that. My marriage deserves more than that. And I didn't have a plan But I knew what had been happening where I would go for my run in the middle of um, my 10th British winter looking for the hour of sunlight in the day and I was crying when I was running and I would look at the sunset and I would just wish for happiness and think I wish I could be happier. And I'm so grateful because of the experience that I've had with depression and my whole life that I realised something was drastically wrong. And I thought... I, this is I am like Homer Simpson stuck in the electrical wires, still reaching out for the duff beer can and getting zapped and going Doh! but still reaching out again. I was repeating the same patterns in my life, expecting different results, and they were all career related. And I, I mean, I can tell you, then three or four years ago, I walked into an agency in uh, London to try to maybe get into the West End or do something. Now, I'm just going to say this. I am a fucking amazing singer. There are not a lot of men who can sing like I can sing. And I thought, this is a no-brainer. I'm Darren Hayes. I've sold all these records. They're going to put me in a West End musical. And they did not. I didn't even get an audition. And I came away from there. And three years later, we live in Los Angeles. Every day I see extraordinary sunsets. I'm doing all these things that I love with my life. And I walked into CAA and went, yeah, I'm here. I've, you know, I'm, in, I'm halfway through Groundlings. Like my first audition for Groundlings, I was like, uh, yes. Um, I'm good at it. Other, other students are like, oh, you're a trained actor, right? You've been... I'm like, no, I've just had 20 years on stage. I've sung with Pavarotti. I've done this, I've done that. Uh, I guess I've just got experience being a performer. The reason the guy three or four years ago didn't even get a call back from a London panto agency is because he hated himself. They didn't know why they didn't call me back. From an energetic point of view, I was a storm cloud. I just walked in there and said, hate me because I hate me. The person I am today, I walk into rooms. I mean, it's hilarious. I turned up at a, 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 um, an audition yesterday at Fox Studios and I'm like the Beverly Hillbillies. I'm like that kid from Brisbane again. I turn up, hi, hi. I'm here for the audition. They're like, "Yeah, which audition?" I'm but, like, "Um, I think it's you know." And they're just but like, "Come
2: on, you walk You drive in a fox in the parking lot, and there's that Star Wars mural that's the size huge. of two tennis courts on the side of the wall. Who doesn't get giddy?
3: Totally, and it's amazing in there. I'm so grateful now. Yeah. I don't have any expectations for it. Yeah, if I did, I wouldn't admit this stuff. I know how press works. My God, but no one wants me to be successful. It's not it's not in our psyche in terms of pop culture to want anyone to ever be successful in other areas. You know, I've had my share. Well, screw that. I want it all. And if at the end of this experience, um, I don't ever get in a star Wars film. Let's let's face it. That's what this is about. (laughs) Um, I'm so proud of myself for being brave. Richard reminds me every day that I should be proud of being brave. I'm proud of him. He's a trained theater director who, who basically became a, a fantastically talented motion graphics animator without any talent, does stuff for Elton John, you know, huge clients, George Michael, gets high into all this sort of stuff. But guess what? He's good at it. It's not really his joy. His joy is screenwriting. He just finished the fir- his first draft of his first ever screenplay and we essentially spend our days high-fiving each other going, we're doing it. Look at us, living the dream. Who cares if they never succeed? What is success? Success is Seeing the fear barrier and just going, meh, it's just smoke, and walking through it anyway because that is joy. That's my joy. (sighs) Take that to the bank. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Take that to the bank. And I'm glad that you know. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to pursue that? Who wouldn't want to pursue that as a way of life? Who wouldn't want to feel like we said in the beginning, which is that you are trying to be the best possible version of yourself? Yeah. That's. That's what it's about. It's, it is a waste of your life if you don't get to experience it. We came to visit you in Venice. Now, we only live around the corner, but we don't come to Venice very much. By God, we drove down the street at sea level and it took my breath away. And I said to Richard... Why don't we – we need to come down here more. This is great It's like it's here. We need to be here. Yeah, Venice is right. So
2: you've already discussed, which I wanted to ask you, about. what do you like about living in Los Angeles? And I must commend you. I failed the first season of Groundlings, um, and that's why I do UCB now. But um, but good for you because it's amazing. For folks who don't know, Groundlings is, I guess, one of the feeder schools for Saturday Night Live. It's like every comedian that you see in the American kind of – I don't know, world of, of comedy, mm-hmm. particularly young comedy, they've all come. Jimmy Fallon was a groundling. Adam Carolla was a groundling. Will, Will Ferrell Farrell was a groundling. Uh, Tina. Tina Fey.
3: Amy and Poehler. then on the other side of
2: thing, thing, um, Amy Poehler was UCB. Oh, she was, right? Yeah, she started UCB. She's, oh, they, she is, right. No, yeah. they, started the company, they started it. Um, so it, it's one of these schools. And in fact, from when I went to my very first day at Groundlings, they're like, we just want to let you know, you're
3: Everybody not going to get
2: these. a job on Saturday Night Live just because you're here. Right. All right.
3: It's not how it works. Well, also everyone repeats too. I think it was yeah. uh, I was very lucky that I didn't have to repeat first. I'm I'm in intermediate and I'm expecting to be asked to repeat because um the game has lifted. I'm in a room yeah. full of really talented actors. Um I'd say I'm in the top half of the class, but I'm certainly certainly not the best. Yeah, right. And uh it's you know, it's good. It's really competitive. Yeah. Did you um because I work with an accent coach, did you ha- when you improv
2: I did it in America I did Groundlings as an American yeah me too I do UCB as an Australian but Groundlings is definitely more character stuff yeah UCB is more just a different version of yourself and I found the UCB stuff to be like once I started in Citizens Brigade it changed how I do my live TV stuff
3: completely I might do UCB I mean what's the process like do you have to audition you don't have to audition you just rock up yeah, because I do find there's a veil with yeah. an accent, which I'm really struggling with. Yeah. Um, like recently I had to do an audition as uh, a South Londoner. Now I'm married to a Brit and I lived there for 10 years, but it was difficult. And yeah, right. there's a veil with the performance because you're just thinking about the voice. Whereas... Um, when we are
2: ourselves. You've really got to be in it. Yeah. I was telling someone today at lunch, like I once did a show here, they needed me as an American for the show. And so I was American for like two weeks. Yeah. I spoke in the accent the whole time and I really sat in the accent, sat in the accent, took all the meetings about the show and I went and shot the show as an American. And when we rapped, when I got my rap clap,
3: boom, back to Australia and everyone freaked out. My test is Subway sandwiches. I know that's bad food, but go into a Subway uh, as an American... That's how I do my accents. Right. I, I just, because there's that fear of being inauthentic and people are saying, oh, ah, where are you from? Yeah. But that's the test. You know, go into the grocery store, post office, order your sandwich, be. People American. say I sound
2: like I'm from Iowa when I do my American accent.
3: Yeah. Isn't it funny? Um, I'm considered to be Midwestern. Yeah. Right. I think it's the, the Queensland.
2: Okay. So. Two more things, but I just want to make a point. When you talked about what happened to you in London, Mm -hmm. that really resonates with with me because at the time when I was here, when I was was going through my divorce, Mm -hmm. up until then, I was crushing every meeting I took. People were closing in the room, all right? Mm. And then suddenly everyone's going, passing. Everyone's saying no because I walked in just with a stink on me. I walked in with a stink of desperation and I didn't. I didn't know. But it just radiated from every pore of me. Yeah. that, And I think that's really important that folks can understand. Like you don't just leave that shit at home. No. It follows you everywhere you go, like the kid in Peanuts with the
3: cloud over his Uh head. You're that guy. I liken it to um, animals in the wild and the herding aspect. And when you see, um, like if you see, say, zebra or deer or something and they're being stalked by a lion. And all of a sudden, 57 animals go, holy shit, and they run at the same time. They're tiny electrical impulses that are, in, you know, impossible to see or yeah. feel, but it's an energy. Yeah, right. And that positive energy, um, you know, and you don't have to get all spiritual about it. It could, you know, you can explain it in terms of science. We're all just, sound is just a vibration. Everything is just energy at the end yeah. of the day. We are here to direct it. We, you know, energy doesn't dissipate. It just changes direction. And so... The idea that you can walk into a meeting and you can feel good about yourself or bad about yourself is a choice. But it starts with you. And people pick up on it and they don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: I really want the one-man show to happen because I want to come and see it. (laughs) So please keep writing it. I will. Um, And I wanted to ask you this, and I know you'll have something to say. Um, For... Just so you know, my uh, I do have a, I do have a you know a skin in the game. My, I'm one of four brothers. My younger brother is is gay. Has been hmm. f- my you know n- knew when he was. Welcome five. to the
3: family. Yeah. Well, I'm so so happy for you. The That's fraternal great. birth order effect is very interesting. He's <laughs> a, he's the
2: third of four boys. It's going to happen. Yeah. Um, oh, scientifically
3: proven. Absolutely. It's scientifically proven that it's adaptation. Thirty three percent more likely. Uh, And let's explain to folks who don't know. The theory is it's from ancient clan dwelling and the idea is that after – when the testosterone becomes too much, what is most useful with another male is one that isn't, isn't going to compete to mate, that is going to help raise the clan, that is going to be a problem solver, that will be relieved of the burden of, say, fixing the sink Thank God so that's why I think gay people are so fabulous because we are given um, an opportunity to spend a little bit more time with creative solutions truly because we don't have so many obligations to the clan but oh, anyway yes back to oh, your so I, I
2: think it the percentage isn't quite so high as me, but I, and I've talked
3: about this on the show before. But you're I very metrosexual, but don't I worry, I've never, say I've, metro. N- I've never thought that you were on the uh, the same uh, side of the street uh, ever.
2: My bus has slowed down, and I have had a jolly good look out the window, <laughs> but I never, I never got off. No. If that's if you are I was that.
3: married to a woman, and bless her, and she's one of my best friends, and we know it. But you know, you know, if you're with someone and you're still, you know, if if she's a girl and you're still thinking about Bruce Willis, there's a problem. And she don't look like Bruce Willis. <laughs> so I'm
2: stoked that you're married.
3: Yes, I'm me too.
2: super happy that you married and married again because it makes me think that, oh, it can happen again. Yes. It can happen Of again. course, yeah. And for a long time, we talked about being stuck in a moment. It felt like it would never happen again. It felt like I would never have that again.
3: Well, it was a choice. Same way getting a record deal was a choice. Uh, I absolutely woke up one day and said, I'm sick of being sad. I woke up one day and thought, I'm so worthy of love. If I'm here and I'm worthy of love, there has to be someone out there for me. And uh, I woke up one day in London 10 years ago and decided that I was going to stay in London instead of come back to San Francisco. I gave up my green card and uh, I just knew that there was magic around the corner and he was. And I met him. And when I met him, I didn't have that stank on me like we talked about. Yeah. I was someone you wanted to be around. And when I met Richard, he was somebody that I just wanted to be around. I wanted to be in, that, in his atmosphere. Yeah. I wanted to be in that energy. And we've had a, you know almost 10 years together. Um, and our marriage is incredible. But we obviously have had periods when we've been collectively sad together and collectively happy. But what has always kept us together is that we adore each other and we believe that we deserve each other. So, yeah.
2: What would you say to people who feel a bit funny in the tummy about marriage equality?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I think the easiest way to to really look at this is, um, could you please just separate it from any religious or uh, ethical uh, uh, viewpoint that you're looking at it and uh, view it in terms of what it actually is, which is a legal document. Um, I think it was um oh gosh, I'm gonna quote somebody whose name I can't remember. She was the redhead from Sex in the City, Cynthia Nixon posted something on Twitter recently which was essentially that granting women the right to vote didn't change the definition of voting. I could say the same thing in Australia, giving Indigenous Australians the ability to vote or In we... the sixties. Exactly. It was horrible. <laughs> the fact that we did that is horrible. Not...
2: Forget that part.
3: But you know, uh inviting uh, you know, African-American folk to the countertop, didn't change dining. It just brought people to the table, brought everybody to the same table. And um, all I can tell you is if you want to know why I passionately believe, I wrote an article about this for Attitude magazine, why I passionately believe in marriage equality is that one out of every, I think it's something like um, 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 gay questioning kids are four times more likely to commit suicide than heterosexual kids. And you don't have to be a brain surgeon to work out why. It's because they can't imagine a happy future. Uh, When you grow up, Disney exists because it sells you – well, it isn't a myth actually. I'm going to defend it. But they sell you the idea of a happy ever after and that often involves falling in love and living and growing old with someone. Everybody deserves to be the old couple at the beginning of the movie Up – Oh, yeah. Everybody deserves to be that. And when you have a, a human being that is raised into the world that says, you can have everything except the possibility of a soulmate or completion. And, and it's not, it isn't about the piece of paper, but it is about how you feel your society views you. And the only way a society can really give its citizens the positive message is to change how it functions from the most uh, high level and it filters down, and when something becomes law, eventually, uh, we all know it's wrong to be racist. It Doesn't mean that racism doesn't exist, but you feel that you live in a society where that is wrong, that is that is reprehensible. There are laws, there are things to protect equality. That's my argument for uh, marriage equality. You know, you just it's a, it's a, it's it's really just a, it's something that a lot of folks don't really want to have to deal with. But it's like, come on, we have a you know, we have a, a rusty roof. We need to fix it because we all live under it. So just deal with it. I don't care if you don't like roofing. There's a hole in it. Fix it.
2: You're right. Mm. I, I I couldn't agree more. I, I, often, I often joke like, you know, f- find me a homophobe and then give me 10 minutes. Right. Just give me 10 minutes. It's, just, it's a
3: conversation. I'm sure you saw this. This is the best answer ever, uh, which is that you uh, – I think um, Gizmodo or someone did this uh, – Uh, you can YouTube this but essentially it was asking folks two questions they said um, uh, do you believe that homosexuality is a choice and uh, the folks that said uh, yeah I do actually and they said okay that's cool that's interesting so what age do you remember when did you choose to be straight and the recipients would say excuse me like, no, no, you just said, so you believe that homosexuality is a choice. So when did you choose to be straight? And everyone is baffled by that question. And most people say, wow, I've never thought about it like that. I guess I didn't choose. That is the definition of what is wrong with the way homophobes view sexuality is that I am here to tell you I did not choose this shit. I'm so grateful that I am. For a long time I didn't. It was. It fed into my feeling of self-worth and, and whatever. But... Yeah. I have lots of statistics about me that I didn't choose. Blue eyes, you know, color of my hair, um, color of my skin. And my sexuality is just one of those. It's just an attribute about me. And it's actually a useful piece of information. Might have helped me a little bit when I was younger if I'd known exactly what what size shoe to wear. But I do now. And uh, it's like, oh, okay, cool. That's what it is. That's sexuality. And is
2: that it really is? Oh God! It really is that simple, and that really is all it is. It totally is. It's a very varia- it's a variation. I accept it. yet yeah, just because there's big parades and nightclubs and albums and shit that go around that. It's great. There's also giant industries that support heterosexuality, but at the very base of it, that's really all it is. It it totally is. is.
3: And, you know, fringe elements of any culture only exist when it is considered forbidden. And uh, a lot of gay men will tell you that actually one of the downsides of equality is that it's less um, thrilling to be gay now because it's so accepted. (laughs) I can't deny that there was a certain thrill about holding uh, a boyfriend's hand under a table. Because it was a bit like being in a 40s, you know, it was a bit like um, the end of the affair. Yeah, right. You know, it was like, <gasps> no one understands our forbidden love. Well, now everyone does, apparently, apart from a few people. I found a uh, a, a fascinating uh,
2: idea that in the f- 40s and 50s in New York, mm-hmm. there was an entire language. Polari. That's the one. There was an entire language that <laughs> was... You know, oh, God, I'm sorry. No, I'm no, no, it's fine. Really ruining tea here. No, no, no. No, do it. You just oh, got to hold port- the top in i 've
3: poured the oolong it 's not oolong actually is
2: it? it 's getting mucher uh, there was entire la- there 's an entire language that existed within the gay subculture of New York with secret code words, and so mm-hmm. two men could have a conversation in front of a cop, and the cop would have no idea that they're saying well, actually quite thick and uncut your place great
3: yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> because that 's the conversation they were having in front of the yeah. in front of the copper because if they were to talk about that openly, they would be arrested, exactly. and taken to prison.
3: Yeah, friends of mine have got a magazine called Polari. It's a, oh, obviously yeah. it's a, a gay centred magazine, but yeah, um, um, definitely um, in in London as well. You know, the swinging uh, amazing, swinging gay. London. So great, we don't have to have that anymore. No, exactly. Let's, uh, it, let's well, in our in our part of the world, in some parts of the world though, people hey, listen, feel pretty in weird In some about parts it. of the world, it's a freaking death penalty, yeah. and I would not want to be at uh, you know the Winter Olympics right now and and be. Um,
2: have you seen the Google Doodle today? Yeah, it's fantastic. The rainbow flag? Made yeah. me very happy. Me too.
3: Much like having you here has made oh. me very happy.
2: At Darren Hayes on Twitter. Uh, call into his podcast. Yeah, if you're brave. Yeah. Talk, talk, talk. This is a podcast. I am so grateful that you and your husband came to visit me today.
3: Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm going to take your photo. All right. I'm up for it. Unreal. And I never let anyone take my photo because I feel like it steals my soul. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So that's the show, my friends. That's Darren Hayes. He's ace. He's on Twitter, at Darren Hayes. If you liked that show, if you liked anything you heard in that show, please do send him a note. Let him know you heard him here. Let him know you were vibing. Um, To make it easy, there's a a tweet. There's a like link. There's a tweet link. There's a like link. There's all that stuff for this episode at osherginsburg.com. Get into his podcast. It's called Talk, Talk, Talk. It's on, on iTunes. It's a cracker. If you like this chat... You'll love that chat because you actually get to call him up. He does a call-in show on on, on iTunes. So it's superb. I highly recommend it. So, um, look, just thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of this adventure. Thanks for letting me talk about, you know, my trials and tribulations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very grateful that I'm able to share... What I share with you and the response to what I share with you. So if you keep listening, I'll keep, I'll keep doing it. Before I get out of here, uh, we were talking a lot of music today. So I'd like to um, introduce you to another musician here in LA. I'm going to leave you with a track from him. He's ticking a lot of boxes for me. Um, I mentioned Darren and I almost nearly played in the same band together. But actually, at one point in my life, I did play double bass in a country band. And it was a big turning point in my appreciation of all things uh, Americana. So with that in mind, um, I'd like to leave you with this. It's a new single from Kai Brown. You can find him on Twitter at Kai Brown, K-A-I-B-R-O-W-N. His new single, which has an excellent video (laughs) featuring the angelic Ashley Hart, uh, is out right now. If you're on a highway, enjoy this. It's a solid piece of road trip music. This is Kai Brown. This is Princess of the Desert. Enjoy. I'll see you next week. Sleep well, my darling friends, and dream of beautiful, beautiful things.
1: in your arms like sunsets in new Desert. Princess of the desert Here from heaven, won't you come closer to me? Kiss like an angel, feathers in your hair, eyes that burn green like the sea, skin like the sunset over the sand, smile like a crystal in light. It's been a long winter, spring is the season, underneath the stars tonight. Ooh. Mm-hmm.